Hello, my name's Craig Barton and welcome to the Tips for Teachers podcast, the show that helps you supercharge your teaching one idea at a time. Each episode, I invite a guest from the wonderful world of education to share five tips for teachers to try both inside or maybe even outside of the classroom. With each tip, the challenge is always to ask yourself, what would I have to do or change to make this work for me, my situation and my students? Experimentation and frustration may follow, but hopefully something good will come out of it. Now remember to check out our website, tipsforteachers.co.uk, where you'll find all the podcasts, as well as the links, resources and audio transcriptions from each episode. But better than that, you'll also find a selection of video tips, some taken directly from the podcast and others recorded by me. These clips could be used to spark discussion between colleagues, at a departmental meeting, a Twilight Insight and so on. Now, just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word of thanks for our lovely sponsor. Because this episode of the Tips for Teachers podcast is proudly supported by Arc Maths. Arc Maths is an innovative app created by teachers to help students remember all those crucial skills needed to succeed at maths. Arc Maths is built around research into the power of retrieval practice and space practice on memory, and here's how it works. Students crack, op- students crack open the ArcMaths app and are given a 12-question quiz with follow-up practice questions on anything they got wrong. Not just straight away, but the next day, three days later, a week later, and so on, until they have it secure in long-term memory. The more time they spend on the app, the better Arc will get to know your students and what they need. With no teacher input required, you can spend more of your time inspiring your students with new ideas. So do check out Arc Maths, and remember that's Arc with a C, not a K. Okay, back to the show, and let's get learning with today's guest, the wonderful Dylan William. Spoiler alert, here are Dylan's five tips. Tip one, make feedback into detective work. Tip two, make detention work fit the crime. Tip three, make question planning part of lesson planning. Tip four, a word of caution here, we have little insight into our learning. And tip five, don't let don't know be the end of the conversation. I'll tell you what, this is an absolute classic. Now, if you look at the episode description on your podcast player or visit the episode page on tipsforteachers.co.uk, you'll see I've timestamped each of the tips so you can jump straight to any one that you want to listen to first or when you revisit this, you can dive straight into any tip you want to re-listen to. Enjoy the show. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mr. Dylan William to the Tips for Teachers podcast. Hello, Dylan. How are you? Very good, thanks. How are you, Craig? Very good, thank you. Um, Dylan, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, ideally in a sentence? Uh, A former maths and science teacher who then went on to train teachers, did some research, did some things in university administration, and then, oddly, left university life to concentrate on teaching and research. Fantastic. Brilliant stuff. Right, Dylan, let's dive straight in. What's your first tip for us today? My first tip relates to feedback. And there's a lot of stuff that teachers are told about feedback that really isn't supported by the research. And there's a really important review by two American researchers, Kluger and Denise. And everybody cites this research, but hardly anybody reads what these two guys said. On the last page of their paper, which is a very, very dense paper, they did a meta-analysis of the effects of feedback, found the average effect size was 0.4. But then they said, we don't think that's important. 
We don't think that's as important because the effect size of feedback is irrelevant if you get a high effect size by making the students more dependent on the feedback. What they pointed out was that a feedback intervention that makes students need more feedback in the future is actually not very helpful. And so what they suggested was, rather than looking at the effect size of feedback, we should be looking at what the students do with the feedback. They pointed out they can change behavior, change the goal, abandon the goal, or reject the feedback. And so this was the first paper, uh, this is 25 years ago now, that really said we should worry less about the kind of feedback and more about what the students do with it. And so you know, I say to teachers, good feedback is feedback that students use. And so feedback isn't get, getting used by the students, it's completely irrelevant. And yet still people are trying to figure out what the effect size of feedback is when it's a kind of silly question. So recently, a lot of people have started looking at what some researchers call recipients processes, for putting the, the effort not into getting the feedback perfect, but getting the relationship between the students and the teachers right, so the students act on the feedback. And so I've been working on this for about 10 years now, trying to think about how we can make feedback more accessible to students. And so you know, I do think there's a case for teachers writing comments on students' work. I, I don't think it should be the primary form of feedback. So I've advocated what I call four quarters marking, 25% detailed feedback, 25% whole class marking, 25% peer assessment, 25% self-assessment. But I want to focus on that event where the teachers do write comments on students' work. And we had this crazy thing in England, which was called triple marking. The <laughs> teachers wrote on the kids' work, then the kids responded to it, and the teacher had then a check that the students had responded to it. Here's my point. I think that if you're going to take time to write individual comments on students' work, which is basically one-to-one -one tuition, I don't know a single teacher who could mark two books at the same time. <laughs> it's the most expensive form of education we have, so let's make sure something happens. So I would say to teachers, if it's worth your while taking time to write comments on students' work, it's worthwhile taking class time for the students to respond. So I think we should just completely change the way we think about feedback. And if you're giving feedback, the next 10 minutes, when those students are in the classroom with you, they'll be responding to the feedback that you give them. But to make it even more effective, I think we have to kind of make this feedback something that invites a response. So this was triggered by looking at the work of an English teacher named Charlotte Kerrigan, who rather than writing comments on her students' work, this was a year 10 class doing an essay on a Shakespeare play they'd read, she wrote the comments on strips of paper. And each group of four students got back their four essays and the four strips of paper. And their task was match the comments to the essays. Maths teacher said to us, this is all very well for history and English, <laughs> but you can't do comment only marking in maths. If you tick 15 of these equations as correct and put a cross next to five others, the students can figure out for themselves. They've got 50 out of 20 or 75%. So we suggested, well, why not just tell them five of these are wrong, you find them, you fix them. And so here's the big idea. Rather than thinking about feedback as information, think about feedback as detective work. The idea is that the feedback should cause a puzzle or a challenge for the students to engage in. So rather than saying, you know, remember to use the correct grammatical gender, der, die, das, in, in German, yeah, which I call feedback as nagging, how about... <laughs> There are five places in this piece of writing where you've used the incorrect 
grammatical gender for deride das. I've highlighted two of them. See if you can find the other three. And so by actually creating kind of invitation to respond to the feedback, I think it makes it far more likely that students respond to the feedback in a positive way. So tip one is make feedback into detective work. I love it, Dylan. Just just one thing on that. Um, it was a low point in my teaching career was those Sunday afternoons or it went into Sunday evenings, marking through a pile of 30 books. The comments get worse and worse as I go through, like child 26, they're lucky if they're getting anything in their books. I've exhausted all my, all my efforts and enthusiasm. And then you give it back to the kids and then you'd have to hand out the purple pen and they'd have to do that. Then you'd respond to the purple with a green pen. And the irony I always found was that the, the more detailed I made the comments, the less impact it had because it was so supportive for the kids. They didn't have to do any thinking. They were like, all right, I can see it all there and so on. And whenever I first heard you mention this, this um, feedback as detective work, I loved it for a couple of reasons. I loved it primarily because it made the kids think more and it was much more active part of the of the process but also it's less work for the teacher as well in a good way because i can just do as a maths teacher tick 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 cross cross and of course i'm making a note of general trends in the class which are the problematic questions any common misconceptions but i don't have to write all these flipping big long comments give it back to the kids and they they like the almost gamification of, of trying to find where those wrong ones are it's it's brilliant i absolutely love it it's great it's great. Right, Dylan, there's a danger you've peaked too soon there because that's a brilliant tip. Well, what's your, what's your second tip you've got for us? Well, I was trying to come up with a series of tips at different levels of specificity and different aspects of teachers' work. And so the second one concerns detention. Now, there's a big debate about whether detentions are useful or not, uh, but these days they're often the only sanction that a teacher has. And so the question for me is what should kids do in detention? So obviously there's there is the challenge of getting students to turn up, and that depends on the school policy. So some schools actually have a very clear policy that a teacher, if issue a student detention, and the student doesn't turn up, that automatically gets elevated up to a deputy head, and then they're in the deputy head's detention. So students know that if they don't turn up for detention, it's gonna get more serious. I think that's really important. The school culture is important. But I think the, the really important point for me is what do students do during detention? I think there's two things. The first is you must make it absolutely clear that this is not any bother at all for you. So whenever I had kids in detention, I always had a stack of marking to do. And so it was a kind of, like, I'm going to be here marking this work and it's not inconveniencing me at all. <laughs> the other thing you have to watch out is that English teachers don't like students being made to write lines because it destroys handwriting. They also don't like them to do, um, being asked to do uh, some kind of writing about what they did wrong because become, writing becomes a punishment. And so I think if students have actually not done the work and the detention is there to help them catch up, then I think it's appropriate for students to do the work they missed. But I don't think they should be doing maths questions because it makes work the punishment. I think the big message here is schoolwork is not a punishment. Schoolwork is a privilege because people in other countries who would love to have the opportunity to learn and advance their skills. So I think we have to be very careful about the messages we send during detention. And my personal preference is for students to do absolutely nothing in detention. They just have to sit there. Um, and, you know, it's really, really boring. Anything you give to do makes it slightly less boring. 
And therefore, for me, um, you know, make the punishment fit the crime, to quote Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, if, if it's lack of work, then it's appropriate to give the work. But for the rest of the time, I think just two things. Make sure that, you, that they understand that you'd be there anyway doing the marking and don't give them work that makes it harder for other teachers. Make it actually as boring as possible. That's really interesting. Well, I'll tell you now, I fall into two traps there. I, I've done the opposite of what you've said for many years. So first is I dread when I'm on detention duty and I make it very clear when I walk in, I'm fed up. I don't want to be that. I think I even say that sometimes. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. So that's that's an error straight away. So I've made a note about that one. But the second thing is, I it all, always turns into almost like a, an intervention class because if the kids mm. are doing maths and they know I'm a maths teacher... I, I barely get to sit down and it's hands up, can you help with this? And then the classic yeah. thing is, of course, if they say, if you don't help them, well, they say, well, I, I'm not doing anything. I'm stuck. I can't help. And then the behavior starts to unravel and so on. So I'm going to find it hard, I think, for them to do nothing. But I like the logic of it. It's I'm going to find it hard to enact, but I'm, I'm on board with the logic. I like that, Dylan. Well, it's, it, but it's only appropriate if they're punishing, being punished for bad behavior. Yes. So just sitting yes. still. If, if they're there for, for not doing their work or not doing their homework or whatever, then it's a, entirely appropriate for them to make that up in, in homework. Makes sense. Okay, Dylan, tip number three, please. So um, in, the, in your conversation with Adam Boxer, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, um, he talked a lot about mini whiteboards. And so he actually exemplified um, one aspect of the, the fundamental principle of classroom formative assessment. Better evidence leads to better decisions, leads to better learning. Now, of course, as David Dido has pointed out, we can't be sure that what they've been doing in the lesson results in long-term learning. But you can be sure that if they have got the wrong end of the stick in the lesson, you find out about it before the lesson ends. And Adam talked very eloquently about mini whiteboards as a way of finding out what is, what is going on, and uh, he was rightly critical of cold call. Cold call is better than asking the usual suspects. You know, if the smartest kid in the room gives you the correct answer, it doesn't mean that anybody else has got it. And the staggering thing for me is how prevalent that practice is of relying on evidence from the smartest kid in the room to make a decision about the learning needs of the other 39 kids in the class, in the case of Adam's class. And so, you know, cold call is better because you're hearing from somebody who isn't necessarily the smartest kid in the room, but it's still weak because you're only hearing from one student. So many whiteboards, uh, I actually prefer multiple choice questions. And we've talked about this before because it makes the job simpler. Reading 40 mini whiteboards is very difficult. Scanning 40 ABCD cards or even students one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D, five for E. That makes it much simpler. So multiple choice questions have the benefit of pre-processing that, that data analysis task for the teacher. So Adam talked eloquently about the, the breadth of the evidence. I think to go with that, we have to talk about the depth of the evidence. Mm -hmm. So is this a question that is worth asking? And what we've discovered in our work with teachers is that good questions are really hard to come up with. Yeah. So the big idea here is you should plan the question as part of your lesson plan. You know, uh, if I was a head teacher and we had a policy of looking at teachers' lesson plans, which I'm not sure is a very sensible idea, but I'd be very happy with the teacher saying, here's the objectives of this lesson 
And here's the questions I'm going to use to find out. There's no point in making teachers lay out the script they're going to use because they're, mm. they're going to do what they've been doing for 20 years. But I think that the question that they ask to find out if the students have been successful is crucial. And many teachers ask questions where the students can get the right answer with the wrong thinking. So the big idea here is make the questions that you're going to be asking to check on understanding part of the lesson planning process. The idea is you build that into the lesson. You always build plan B into plan A. I'm going to get to this point in the lesson. and I'm going to check to see whether the students are with me. And here is the question I'm going to ask at that point. And I script it word for word. Um, one of the teachers in the Kamofat project uh, from Medway, uh, Dave Tuffin, he often, if he had a sixth form class in the morning, he would post up the, a question that he'd planned to use with his year eight class in the afternoon, say, and the class would often discuss whether that was a good question to be using. So making these questions, kind of things that we discuss and maybe changing a word here or there can make it work slightly more effectively, that idea of refining and polishing your questions and including them as part of a lesson plan. That's my third tip. Make question like planning it, part of lesson planning. I like it. Just two two things on that. One, I think we, we both agree. It's hard, isn't it? As you, you've said there, it's writing these questions is, is tough. And for many years as a teacher, that was the last thing I thought of in my plan. My plan was all exactly. about the activity, all about the bright, shiny paper wrapped around it and so on. The, well, one, I very rarely check for understanding. So let's just put that on the table. But then when I, when I did learn that checking for understanding was a good thing, I almost thought, well, I'll just make the question up on the spot. It'll be fine. And exactly. again, having having written however many thousand diagnostic questions, you realize how hard it is to write a good mm. question and, and how planning those in advance and working with perhaps more experienced colleagues and making it a collaborative process is, is a really important part of this. So that's the first thing I wanted to reflect on. Secondly, I was doing some work just yesterday, actually, um, in, a, in a school, and they were looking to improve their scheme of work. And the classic thing they had on their scheme of work, and you see this on every scheme of work, is it said like, you know, two week, in these two weeks we're teaching percentages and these are the objectives. So got, kids have got to be able to find a percentage of an amount without a calculator, percentage of an amount with a calculator, reverse percentages, blah, blah, blah. And the point I was making with the head of department is it'd be so much more powerful if you have examples of the type of questions you wanted kids to be able to answer. And they could be used as those hinge point questions so that every teacher at some point will ask that question. And it may be at different points if kids are working faster and so on. But there's your well thought through hinge point question. And if the kids do well at it, Okay, we crack on. If they don't, you've got this plan B as you speak about. But I very rarely see, I don't know if you do, in, in schemes of work, in schemes of learning, kind of examples of questions. And for me, it no. feels like one of the most important things to put in there. Absolutely. What would it mean to be successful? Yeah. And, and the, the thing is, um, this is a bit of a jargon phrase, but one of my favorite phrases is assessments operationalize constructs. Oh, wow. So we can talk about what it means to be able to add fractions. But the question is, which fractions do you, do you mean? Yes. And so the assessments put flesh on the bones of those ideas. You, we, we, we might think we agree about what it means to be able to rank fractions in order of magnitude. But yeah. until we talk about the questions we're going to use to determine that, we don't know that. And in fact, often we find out that we have very different ideas of what it would mean to do that in practice. So assessments force you to get off the fence and say exactly, you know, if my teaching has been successful, then my students will be able to answer this question correctly. Yes. And that's why assessments are so powerful. 
Yeah, I agree. And the, definitely the last thing on this um, is it helps the kids as well, right? Because you, you have these lesson objectives and they can't, and teachers can't interpret them. The kids certainly don't have a clue what's going on with them. Whereas there's something real concrete about a question. Can you answer yeah. this question or not? And that, that's the kind of good hinge point. No, I, I love that, Dylan. That's great. Okay, tip number four, please. Tip number four is more a caution than a tip. But the big idea here comes from the distinction that psychologists make between learning and performance. So Robert Bjork has done a lot of work in this area, and he's shown that students really like being successful in completing learning activities. But that is often a very poor guide to whether they're going to remember it in two or three weeks' time. And so performance is the performance in the task that's designed to teach them something, and learning is the long-term changes in capability that result. And the point is that they're not the same. There's some evidence that there's a slight negative relationship between these two things. Now, obviously, um, if the task is so challenging the students give up, then little learning will take place. But Robert Bjork has invoked this phrase, desirable difficulties. Uh, we need to struggle a little bit in the task. Obviously, if we struggle too much, we might be unsuccessful. But I think the thing that I, is really important for me is we have very little insight into our learning. So we are very bad at predicting whether we're going to remember something in the future. And obviously, if there's a very strong emotional resonance, you know, I will never forget where I was when I heard about the death of Princess Diana or the assassination of JFK, you know, or the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. I mean, I remember where I was when I heard that. But most school life isn't like that. And so we're actually not very good at predicting whether we're going to learn something or not. We're going to remember, I have lost track of the number of times I've put something in my freezer and I haven't bothered to label it because I know I'm going to remember what it is. And six weeks later, I haven't got a clue what it is. Now, <laughs> the fact that I forgot is not interesting. What is interesting is how certain I was that I would remember. We don't have very good insights into our own learning. And we often use the word learn in a very kind of um, unhelpful sense. So I had a leaking tap uh, in the in a wash basin in, in our house. And American taps are different from British taps, so I watched a video. And I, I learned how to change the tap. But I didn't learn it. Because if I needed to do it again, I would need to watch the video again. So we often use this, I learned how to do this in a way that actually says, I learned how to follow a set of instructions to achieve the desired result. And so we often use the word learning when the word performance would be more appropriate. I think it's really important to remember that students say, I know this now, I've got this. First of all, we don't know whether it's going to get through to long-term memory. And we also need to remember the Dunning-Kruger effect. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to overestimate your achievement. You know, uh, This is why self-reports are so inaccurate. 93% of American car drivers believe they're better than average. They, they can't all be right, can they? Now, we used to think that the reason for this was because they didn't want to admit that they didn't know. And part of that is probably the case. But the biggest reason why so many people think they're good drivers is they don't know enough about good car driving to know that they're not very good at car driving. As David Dunning himself says, rule one of Dunning-Kruger Club is you don't know you're in Dunning-Kruger Club. <laughs> and so I think we teachers just need to be constantly skeptical about whether students say, I get this now. And this, this thing about student voice and asking students, you know, to, to say what, the, what, what they like in learning. They don't know. They are novices. They're not experts. And so 
you know, I think we should listen to our students, but we shouldn't trust their insights into their own learning. I think that's the important thing. I, I'm a big believer in self-assessment. Self-assessment self often makes students sharper and clearer in asking for help. But we shouldn't trust that a student saying, I understand this, means they understand it, because they may not know enough about what it means to understand, to actually really understand it at the level that you want them to understand. So tip four is, we have little, all human beings have little insights into their own learning. And you need to be vigilant to be focusing on the long-term learning, not just the improvements in task performance. That's brilliant, that Dylan. Just a, a couple of thoughts on that. It goes back to something you said earlier on. Um, often this is used, and I, I've read David Dido's arguments, almost kind of an argument kind of not against formative assessment is too strong, but a cautionary tale about yeah. formative assessment because of this learning performance um, division. But as you said earlier on, if, if you ask a, a good formative assessment question, whether it's a diagnostic question or whatever it is, and the kids can't do it, you can be pretty sure they're not going to learn it. So it's it's almost kind of a bit of a checking point, isn't it? It's yeah. not the end of the story, but it's it's a necessary step on the path to, path to learning. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to raise there is what I've started doing now, for a start, it took me about 12 years to, to realise the distinction between learning and performance, mm -hmm. which is error number one again. But when I did learn it, it then took me another few years to realize the importance of sharing this with the kids. Because it's one thing for teachers to be aware of it, but it's frustrating for students, right? If they if they think, oh, I nailed this today, and then next week they've forgotten it, or next month. So making them aware of the distinction themselves. And sometimes I will show them a diagram of the forgetting curve just to show students yep. how quickly things go. But the positive side of that is if we retrieve it and think hard about it, then we start to flatten out this forgetting curve. I think visuals like that and, and kind of bringing students kind of behind the curtain on how memory works and things like that, that feels to me quite important to, to get that buy-in and also kind of negate some of the frustration they may feel if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to talk about this as a user manual for the human brain. You know, we, we actually have quite a lot, a lot of insights into how learning works. And what's interesting is it's not how most people think that learning, yeah. learning works. So John Dunlosky and his colleagues did a, a review for the Association of Psychological Science on student self-study strategies. And what is interesting is people think that rereading or summarizing or highlighting is an effective review technique. And it really isn't. And I think this distinction between performance and learning is really important when it comes to revision. Because students read something that they read yesterday and they think yeah. they know it. Yeah, I know this because I read it yesterday. The point is, Robert Bjork's work allows us to say, yes, it's familiar because retrieval strength is high. You, you retrieved it from your memory yesterday, so yes, it's available to you right now. It doesn't mean you, you've actually learned it. And so getting students to be much more kind of self-critical, yes, it feels familiar, but you know, can I close the book and not look at the book and retrieve what's you know what's in it can i can i give myself some revision practice from something that i last read two weeks ago rather than yesterday just just getting students to understand how easy it is to be seduced by this familiarity yeah I, i've got it now i know it yes that's retrieval strength it's not storage strength and of course retrieval strength is good for passing exams but if you want long-term learning then we also have to focus on storage strength you know how well it, connect, it is connected to everything else in your memory
Absolutely. Final point on this, Jim Dillon. Just thinking of videos when you mentioned your story about about the tap there. I see this a lot with kids. I can only speak of maths here, but there's thousands of maths videos on on YouTube. And kids will often say, oh, I revised last night because I watched the video on adding fractions or whatever. And this is your classic familiarity effect. You can nod your way through a video thinking, oh, yeah, I get this, I get this, I get this. And at the end of it, you think you've understood it, but, but, but you don't have a clue. So I'll often say to kids two things. One, obviously, the best way certainly to learn maths is to practice math so as you say make sure you can do it with no cues around and you've got questions and so on but if you are going to watch videos keep pausing and just just asking yourself what what's just happened there and what do i think is going to happen next just to make it a bit more of an active part of the process as opposed to just let's just watch a five minute video nod our way through and then we think we've learned it so there are little tricks aren't there if the kids are aware how memory works and stuff that, that that we can teach them right dylan tip number five please so with things like cold call, when you pick on a student who hasn't raised their hand, the, the instant reaction is don't know. Yes. So whenever we want to engage more of the classroom, a lot of students will say don't know. And don't know is student code for go away and leave me alone. <laughs> so the question is, how are you going to react to that? And so... One way, if you've asked a higher order question, one which might have different answers, you might say, okay, if you don't know, I'll come back to you. And then go around the class and get three or more answers from other members of the class and then say, okay, so which one of those answers do you like best? So now rather than having to construct an answer, they just have to select from other people's answers, but you're making them actually respond in a way to the question. Obviously, if it's a low order question where there's only one correct answer, that strategy can't be used. But if it's a multiple choice format, you can say to them, okay, so if you don't know which one of these four options is correct, are any of them definitely incorrect? Can you make the question go 50-50? Which suggests some other techniques like phone a friend or ask the audience. And so I'm very happy if the students are saying don't know, know, do you want to phone a friend? Do you want to ask the audience? Because the really important point here is you mustn't let don't know be the end of the conversation. Yes. If students think they can get rid of you by saying don't know, they will use it every single time. So if you say don't know, I'm going to keep on going. I'm, you are going to say something, <laughs> even if it's just to repeat something that somebody else has said. Don't know will never be the end of the conversation. And a, a tip I got from a, a, an educator called Ellen Keene in the United States if you're really sure a student is saying don't know because they can't be bothered, then a really good technique is, yes, but if you did know, what would you say? <laughs> and it's amazing how often students come up with something because they realize that they've been rumbled, that they can't be bothered to think, that they're going to have to think, but they'll come up with something. And so don't let don't know be the end of the conversation um, is, is a really important thing. But the other way to avoid that is to, to not ask so many questions. So rather than asking questions, make statements. So this is the work of James Dillon, an American researcher. And what he's shown is that when teachers make statements rather than asking questions to to students' responses, they tend to give longer and more thoughtful replies. So, you know, you might do a lesson in American politics and you say, um, what do Democrats believe in? And the student says, Democrats believe in progressive taxation. The teacher might then say, but most Republicans also believe in progressive taxation. 
So you're actually making a statement. So it could be just a kind of point back. Um, what you just said seems to criticize, seems to contradict what Jane just said. Now, that hasn't been my experience, or that has been my experience. Um, the student says, you know, lithium, sodium, and potassium all have a single electron in the outer shell. So you're saying that the first three elements in group one all have a single electron in the outer shell. So that, that idea of a reflective restatement, trying to move the conversation on. And here's my hunch about why that works. When you're asked a question, you could be wrong. Mm. But you can't be wrong responding to a statement. Yes. And so it's just an attempt to encourage the child to say more. And so that, you know, that's why, you know, if, if you get into don't know, that's in a way, that's already the problem. And so I think one of the things that I encourage teachers to do is to think more reflectively about how you're going to get the students talking more. And what's interesting is as soon as you think about this as, as a conversation rather than a Q&A, then a lot more kind of moves become available. So I think the, what's underappreciated and very, very rarely reflect on, simply just do it naturally, but I think it should be a focus of all our reflections, is just the power of non-verbal signal. Hmm. <laughs> or even just a hand gesture to, to invite another student to the conversation. And just getting away from this, it has to be another question. You know, just don't rely entirely on questions. Sometimes making statements can lead to longer, more thoughtful responses because, as I said, my hunch is you can't be wrong responding to a statement. You can be wrong answering a question. That's fascinating, that, Dylan. I'm going to need to reflect about how I can make that work for maths, but I sense it. I sense it could do. I don't see any reason... Because math, maths is one of those things where you just, I'm just question after question after question, but I can't see yeah. any reason why I can't do the statements. Let, it's hard. Let, it's yeah, really hard. Change yeah. It, I mean, so, um, so what I, let me give you an example. When I work with teachers, I do a workshop, and uh, Adam Boxer reflected on this in his uh, talk with you, that he now uses these classroom formative assessment techniques in his professional development sessions. Yes, yes. And so I often ask teachers, here's five options that might have happened in this research study. Which one of these things do you think was the result? And I make them do finger voting, one for A, two nice. for B. And I always say, you chose A. Yeah, okay. You chose B. It's just, it, the difference is just, it's very subtle, yes. but it can be really profound. It's, it's, so it's just getting, it's just trying to get into, out of the habit of asking yeah. the questions that we just always ask. And it's really, really hard. I'm now much better than I used to be. So now when I'm wearing a teacher workshop, I hardly ever ask any questions in response to a, 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 something said by a, a, a participant. It's always a kind of statement just to try to lubricate that conversation, just making it more like an adult, a normal adult conversation yes. rather than a Q&A session. That's amazing. I'm going to definitely try that out, Dylan. Let me ask you one more thing on this. I've been wanting to ask you this for about five years, so now now's the perfect <laughs> time, right? Cold call. I really like the idea of cold call, but the problem I always have with it, and this, this came out in my conversation with Adam and it's come out in this conversation here. I can't see the argument why if you've got a really good question that you want to ask kids, why you wouldn't want first every child to be thinking about the answer. And I think with cold call, I don't think you can guarantee every child's thinking about the answer. I think a lot of kids kind of play a bit of a gamble and think there's 30 mm -hmm. kids in this class. What are the chances of him asking me? And if he does, I'll start my thinking there and then. So I think that's potentially problematic. 
And also, if I can collect all the responses, whether it's on mini whiteboards or diagnostic questions or whatever, I can then choose which responses I discuss with the whole class, as opposed to, again, I'm doing a bit of a gamble that if I ask uh, Dylan, what do you think? You may, you know, you may have the right answer, but actually there may be some really interesting wrong answers that I've not heard from from the rest of the class. So my long rambling thing there is, under what scenario as a teacher would you choose to cold call versus whole class assessment and collecting all responses? Well, first of all, I think they can be combined. So I'll go on to that in a minute. But but sometimes a child just hasn't said something. And so, John, I'd, I'd be yes. really interested in your reactions to what Tracy just said. Yes. So I just think that kind of thing, because um, I know you personally, I know your experiences have been different from Tracy's, so I, I, I'm valuing. So that's the sort of thing that Doug Lamoff talks about, that kind of cold call. But I, I'm with you, really. I think cold call is a stepping stone from asking the usual suspects yeah, to yeah. hold uh, what I what I call all student response systems. Yes. But I think what's really interesting, I mean, I saw a lovely example of this in um, the English teacher in the classroom experiment, Melissa Overbury. Um, she did a lesson on media reporting of emotionally charged events. And she chose the Heisel Stadium tragedy. And so the students read some clips about the Heisel Stadium tragedy. And then she asked the students, who was to blame? Liverpool fans, the Juventus fans, the police, the football authorities, or the stadium authorities. So A, B, C, D, E. And they all had cards, and they held up the card they thought. She said, leave your choices showing on the desk. So then she was able to have a whole class discussion. Mm-hmm. You thought Liverpool fans were to blame. Tell us what. Yes. You thought Juventus fans were to blame. And so the teacher was able to have a much more organized discussion by bringing students into the conversation at the right time. And then, at the end of the lesson, she decided to ask the students to vote again to see if anything had changed. And this time, every student held up more than one card. Wow. So their views have got much more subtle and nuanced. Yes. And what I like about this story is you couldn't have done that with an electronic voting system because you're going to have one right answer. And one girl, Katie, was waving all five cards in the air. Now, Katie is not an angel, and therefore it's entirely <laughs> possible she was being silly. And the teacher said, Katie, why are you waving all five cards in the air? And Katie says, because everyone had some responsibility here. And so I think that idea of moving, you know, of, of using these all student response systems, not just as a way of checking on understanding, not just a way of giving retrieval practice, but as giving the teacher information about what kinds of follow-ups would be appropriate so you can bring students into the conversation at the right time. That seems to me to be a very powerful idea. That's brilliant, Dylan. Uh, just before we go, Dylan, is there anything that you would recommend listeners or viewers check out? Uh, any Anything of your work that you'd want to point them towards or anything that's caught your eye uh, recently? Um, Adam Boxer's book on teaching science, it's a bit you know, nerdy, but I mean, that just seems to be the best thing that I've, I've read about uh, teaching science. It's so comprehensive, so so thoughtful. Um, so yeah, that would be my, that's top of my list at the moment. That's a great recommendation. Well, Dylan, it's always a pleasure speaking to you, and this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's been fun.